Well, thanks, Chloe. Uh, next part in the story, thank you so much. And even the sound effects, well, uh, I couldn't see, uh, what, couldn't see what was going on, but then a, pla uh, sm a plate smashed on the ground, so I'm not sure what happened there, but um, hopefully all was cleared up as well. Um, thanks, Chloe. We're going to turn back to James 2. We are moving on in our series. Uh, you may say slowly, but we are, we are making our way through. Um, and today we reach chapter 2, and we will tackle the first seven verses together, James 2 and the first seven verses. So we're going to read this, and then we will pray, and then we will dig in to all uh, that it has to say to us today. James 2. <clears throat> This is God's word, this is what it says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Let's pray together. Father, <clears throat> we ask again that as we continue in this series together, as we continue to take each verse um, at a time through this wonderful book, that you would help us to apply these practical things to our own lives, that we would realize that as real a circumstance this was 2,000 years ago, it remains the same today. Your word is living and is alive eternally and it is ready and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, may we be ready to receive all that you have to say to us this morning. And may we, may we see it. May, we, may it make a, a difference in our life. May it make a difference in this church. May it make a difference in our mission as we see it today. So speak. That's our prayer. Speak, Lord, as we study it together now. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's Sunday morning at church. Uh, a few minutes before the service is due to start and folks are arriving in. Well, among those who are arriving into the church on that Sunday morning, two newcomers arrive, probably two new converts. The first is very wealthy. What he is wearing, his clothes and his jewelry, is enough to tell us that much, that he is a wealthy guy a Rolex watch maybe, a golf tan, and he smells pleasantly of plush aftershave. 
Now, some of the church, they recognize him when he comes in the door. He's well known. He's a local entrepreneur, maybe. Well, there's a second man who comes in too. A second newcomer arrives. And he couldn't be any more different, could he? He's very poor. And again, this becomes immediately apparent. People smell him before they see him. He hasn't washed properly for weeks. He looks a mess. His clothes are dirty. They're torn and they don't fit him. Well, the two men are now in the building. And the welcoming team are on both of them like a shot. The first man, they swiftly approach saying, Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for coming along today. It's really wonderful to have you with us. Please follow me. And if you sit here, you'll have a good view of all that's going on today. They hand him a bulletin and give him an order of service and make sure he knows everything that's going to happen in that service. Make sure that he's very comfortable. Well, the second man, they take a slightly different approach. The first thing that comes into their minds is suspicion. They think, why would a man like this come to church? What does he want? What business does he have coming here? They try to ignore him for a few minutes. But eventually someone holding their breath walks over and quietly says to him, if you're going to stay here, if you're going to come in and you're going to stay here during the service, well, please just stand over there. Stay at the back, out of everybody's way. We don't really want anyone causing any problems during the service. Both men are new, and yet both are treated completely differently. One is welcomed, the other is barely tolerated. The wealthy man is treated as if he's much greater in worth than the poorer man. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? You probably feel disgusted that anyone, any church would behave like this, right? We think that this is something that wouldn't happen. Generally, we're a welcoming bunch of people, a family. And if you think this way, you might be inclined to think that we can sort of skip chapter two, or at least this part of chapter two, can't we? This doesn't really apply to us, does it? But let's be careful here. Let's be careful. Because the reason that I'm doing, that I'm reading this today, and the reason that, we're, reason that we're doing this is actually because what we're seeing today is connected to what we talked about three weeks ago. Look at verse 27 for a moment, please. Verse 27. Religion that is pure and under fire before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. See, the reason I read verse 27 there now is because that verse speaks about Christians. It speaks about the church, about the church and Christians being pure and holy, being undefiled. It speaks of the church meeting the needs of the most needy and the most vulnerable in society. While doing that, it also speaks of the church remaining unstained. It speaks of what I talked about a few weeks ago, about being in the world but not being of the world. Some of you will remember that. Yet I believe that verse 27 actually has a direct correlation with today's passage. How? Well, you see, favoritism, which is the 
part of the title of this morning's sermon, which is this folly and favoritism. Favoritism is scarily deceptive. It is a scarily deceptive way for the church, both then, 2,000 years ago, and today, to slip into worldliness. It's scarily deceptive, favoritism. You see, the world loves to honor the rich and neglect the poor, doesn't it? You have to go too far to find that out. And so James is saying that the church, if it's not on guard, will do the same thing. We will honor those who are rich and we will neglect the poor. And I believe that what James has expressed here is based on true events. I don't think this is just some sort of scenario. Some people do. But I do think this is actually something that James has seen, maybe, with his own eyes. Or at least heard as he is speaking and pastoring these churches which have been, or the church which has been dispersed across the known world. And I think two things were happening back then. Two things. I think the first century church neglected the poor. Maybe even those who were scattered. We talked about this right back at the beginning, didn't we? Those who were scattered because of persecution. Maybe those because of persecution, we're actually experiencing more oppression and persecution at this time from the rich within the church. So you have some rich, but predominantly poor in the church. And those who are poor are experiencing persecution and oppression from the rich. I think that's the first thing that might, might be going on in the first century. But the second thing is this also, that the poor in the church are beginning to follow the rich because of their social status. And these are disgusting issues which weren't isolated just to the first century church. We can't just place it back there in James 2,000 years ago and say, well, that's the problem they were dealing with then and we don't have that here. Favoritism, partiality has been a present problem in nearly every church in every century. And let me tell you this, it still exists in today's church. But remember that James is experience within the church is just one expression of favoritism. What we read in these seven verses here is just one expression of favoritism. So we are to be on guard with our hearts, remembering back to the first chapter, because there is something in all of us that struggles in this area. There was a man named Lane Adams, and he served for many, many years on the board with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And he tells of a time that actually he was going to take up a pastorate in a large church in America. His wife, a few weeks previous to his induction, sat anonymously in the pews of that church. She sat there for several weeks next to the same woman every week. And that woman that she sat next to didn't even acknowledge her presence. But then came the Sunday of her husband's induction as pastor. And suddenly the now pastor's wife found herself the object of the woman's flattering attention. Interesting, isn't it? Why? Why is that the case? I know that's just one example, but this hopefully helps to open our minds to this uh, folly of favoritism idea. Why is that the case? Why do we still see favoritism and partiality in today's church? Why do we have these issues in our hearts about how we approach and think about those who are different to us? Well, having thought about this, I came to one conclusion. Now, you may agree with me, you may disagree. 
You may come up with other reasons. But here's my answer. We are attracted to those who we think will benefit us rather than to those who will burden us. We are attracted to those who we think will benefit us more than those that will burden us. Now, if I'm right, this alone is profoundly unchristian, isn't it? It says, in effect, that someone who is worth more to the world is worth more to the church. And someone who is worth less to the world is worth less to the church. Can you see how profoundly unchristlike that is? And when you say it, when, it when, when I've just said it out loud, it's, it's disgusting, isn't it? It's despicable. When we have favoritism one, for an, one over the other, when we have it for the rich over the poor, or those who have a good job over those who don't, or those who have better education over those who don't, or those who have greater status, maybe socio, socioeconomically, they have greater status over those who don't. When we state those things, we state loud and clear that one person's soul is, greater, is of greater value than the other. And let me say this today. There will never be in this church a mental social register, period. See, faith and favoritism, they just don't coexist. This is what James is saying. These things do not coexist together. Look at what James calls this in verse 4. <clears throat> Look down to your Bibles. <clears throat> Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James is clear, isn't he? Favoritism is not just to be frowned upon or to be gently discouraged in the church. It is evil and it is sin. That's what it is. In fact, it contradicts the very marks of authentic Christianity. That which James outlined at the end of chapter 1, which we read in verse 27, it is the opposite. It contradicts all that we have seen to this point. And true acceptable religion, as James says in verse 27 of chapter 1, is actually inclined towards the needy. <clears throat> it's not away from them. It's our lives which are inclined towards them, to serve them, to meet their needs, meet the needs of the orphans and widows. Remember, that's just, uh, just an idea. It's a, it's a broader picture, orphans and widows, of all of those in our society who are in need. It's talking about the lost. It's talking about those who need Physically, those who need, spiritually. That is what James is saying. Our lives are to be inclined towards them, not away from them. And therefore, <clears throat> the favoritism that James talks of here is the opposite of not being polluted by the world, isn't it? Being polluted by the world is something that we have been trying to establish in our lives from, since we've got to the end of, uh, end of chapter 1. But yet favoritism is actually the opposite of being polluted by the world. See, favoritism, if it reigns in our life, if it reigns in our church, then we have without question allowed the world to determine how much someone is worth, how much someone is worth based on their economic standing. We've allowed the world to infiltrate our minds in such a way that we see now like the world sees. 
But what James is telling us is actually, no, we need to see as Jesus sees. Men in our church will not be put in positions of leadership because of their social economic status or their success in business or their popularity or because of what they could do for our church. On the other hand, men will not be dismissed because of their low social status or because it would take so long to get them up to speed. Oh, those things may be present in their life. But we do not have a man-made measuring stick when it comes to these sort of things. We stand on God's word and the qualifications that he set out. As I read, as I told you, at the beginning of the year in 1 Timothy and Titus, and that's just one example. We hold God's, words up, God's word up and we say, what does this say? How does this determine what we do? What we will do as we open these doors each week, as we put men into leadership, and especially when we are out on mission, is follow verse one of chapter two. Look at it with me. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This verse literally translated means this, actually says this, don't receive the face. That's what it says. Don't receive the face, which, which means we are to receive someone without biased judgment on externals. We can't make a judgment based on externals, based on how they appear or how they sound or what they say. <clears throat> I said a long time ago that studies were done in the UK that proved that it only takes seven seconds to make a judgment on someone based on how they look, how they talk, how they smell. Well, the Bible condemns such behavior. Let me give you three verses if you're taking notes, three references for you to write down, which are helpful. <clears throat> Proverbs 28, 21 simply says this, show, to show partiality is not good. You can remember that one. That's an easy memory verse, isn't it? To show partiality is not good. Leviticus 19.15 Leviticus 19.15 You shall do no injustice in the court. You shall not be partial to the poor and defer the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Proverbs 22 and 2 The rich and the poor meet together. Well, that's beautiful, isn't it, when you see that? The Lord is the maker of them all. Isn't that wonderful? So the question is, how do we overcome? How do we defeat or kill this sin in our life of favoritism and partiality? What is our motivation against partiality? Well, the only and the greatest motivation and the greatest example that we can find ever is Jesus. Isn't it? This is, the, <clears throat> this is only the second time in James, actually, that he mentions, his, mentions Jesus' name, mentions it at the beginning, and he mentions it here again in chapter two. Although we know that every verse permeates Jesus, doesn't it? When we read the verses, what we're called to be and who we're called, how we're called to act, they're all based on the example of Jesus Christ. However, James mentions them here because Jesus is the only one, as I've said, who sets a perfect example of what impartiality looks like. That's why I think James says here in verse 1 what he says, that the motivational power behind James' command 
to not show favoritism lies in the fact that he calls the believers, look down at verse 1 again, the believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And so if that's our position, if we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've talked about many times about being in Christ as believers, that this is actually where the power lies, in Christ himself, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in essence, what he is saying is this, my brothers and sisters, as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ, who so lowered himself in poverty and humility, don't show favoritism to the rich. The first century church, like us, knew that though Jesus was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I've just read you 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And they, 2,000 years ago, like us today, knew that Jesus was born to a lowly girl called Mary. He was born in a cave. He was brought up in Nazareth, of all places. They knew, like us today, that while Jesus was on earth, he said that foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. They knew, like we do today, that Jesus performed a miracle in order to pay his taxes. They knew, as we do, that Jesus, though he was God, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And do you know what it says after that verse in Philippians 2, 9 11? Do you know what it says? Therefore, having, him, having lowered himself, having humbled himself, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at that name, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus truly is our greatest example and motivation when it comes to favoritism and partiality. He left the splendor of heaven and all of its benefits. He became a man. And he died for rotten, despicable sinners like you and like me. Why? Because when he saw us, he felt sorry for us? No. Because when he saw our filthy rags, when he saw our helpless state, he loved us so much. that he came to exchange them He came to exchange our filthy rags for his perfect, spotless, righteous robes. How amazing. It is imperative that all those in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, display Christ's loving impartiality. That's the message this morning. It is imperative that all those in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, display Christ's loving impartiality. Listen carefully when I say this. The ground beneath the cross is perfectly level. The ground is perfectly perfectly level at the foot of the cross. Look at verse five. Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 
What James says here is why favoritism plays no part in the Christian life. You see, favoritism goes right against the grain of how God works. See, if we get how God works, and we see this, this favoritism and this partiality in the church, it goes directly against how God works. You can imagine, can't you? James inviting his readers to look around them at the churches in the dispersion, if we can imagine a dispersion, friends and family, known people within that church dispersed across this known world under oppression and persecution. And yet he calls the church to look up, to look out and to think about what is going on out there and see what God is doing out there. And he says to them, has not God chosen those, this is verse five, who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him he is telling them to look out. Look at what God is doing right now. Look at what God does, has done, and will do in the church. The church at that time weren't, as I've said already, exactly rammed full of well-to-do, influential people. No. Quite the opposite, I would imagine. So James is asking the church to look at itself and see just, so, just what sort of people are responding to the gospel. God is calling many who are poor. That's the reality in this moment. And this is, as I'm going to explain in just a moment, the reality of how I think God is inclined to work. Not long after James, Paul wrote something similar in 1 Corinthians 1. And I want you to go there now. So let's go back a few books in our our Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians 1, please. And we're going to read verses 26 and verse 27. 1 Corinthians 1. Let's go there. One Corinthians one twenty six and twenty seven. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Quite powerful, isn't it? Let's maybe just keep reading on for for one more verse. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts. In the Lord. Now, we must be careful not to think that James or Paul are saying that the church was full of only the poor and the weak, or that the wealthy and the influential, or the wealthy or the influential, are not worth trying to reach with the gospel. That is not what they're saying. Both James and Paul are both pointing to a clear redemptive pattern. A clear redemptive pattern. It is not random. God is choosing and calling people to himself in a particular way. And a striking feature of this redemptive pattern, this God calling people to himself, has tendency to do so from among the poor and lowly. 
But don't miss what God is calling them for. Look at verse 5, back to James 2, verse 5. He is calling them to be rich in the faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. And as I've said before in this series, the lowly are often in position of privilege, aren't they? The lowly and the poor are often in a, priv- in a privileged position. The poor have nothing of earthly measure to hope in, to hold on to. And we can all get this this morning in our brains. The poor and lowly have nothing in this world. They don't have anything to hold on to or to hope in. And so in some ways when they see Jesus, they see his riches and his glory. And they see his worth. And so you can see how they are in this privileged position. However, on the opposite side of the coin, the rich are often so consumed and distracted by many things in the world. And many times don't see a need for a savior like Jesus. I grew up in a place with great affluence. We weren't rich kids, but we grew up in a place which is now in the south of England, totally different to what it was when I grew up as a kid. And I remember reaching out to different places in that community. I remember even uh, a team of guys coming from Northern Ireland from Portland Baptist Church and going on and doing some work around the the village, knocking on doors and, and even asking how we can help. And I remember a number of those guys coming back to the church and saying to us, people ask the question, things like, how much do I have to give you for you to do this? Or what do you want? Or no, I'm okay, I don't need any help. And that's the sort of place that, unfortunately, uh, is very present in many places. Affluence, And the rich are often so consumed and distracted by what they have that they don't see a need for for a savior, for someone to save their soul. Because they have everything they need, or so they think. And this is the basis of James' final point in our passage today. And look at verses 6 and 7 as he says these things. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme an honorable name by which you are called? See, James's intention isn't to light inside of us a fire of resentment against the rich. No, that's not what he's trying to do. However, James is pointing out the irony of Christians putting their hope and dreams in those who are rich. A first century problem and a 21st century problem too. In our day, materialism perverts the human soul. It fosters spiritual derangement. And many seek the approval of the rich, those who are in places of power, those who are in places of influence. Many seek their approval. Many seek after famous people, famous things. We have devotion like for no one else. And yet Jesus sees everyone as they really are. He sees them as they really are. He sees the rich man, as we read in James 2, the one with gold rings and lovely clothing. He sees him and he sees the fine, he sees the the poor man with a shabby, torn clothing. He sees them just as they are. He sees their heart, not their clothes. He does not note their wardrobe, He, he notes their heart. And our Predominantly white, middle-class, evangelical churches have in many ways become removed from the poor. 
And the greatest reason for our removal, the thing that has created maybe a chasm, maybe that's stretching it too far, but I think is partly down to our materialism, to the comfort we enjoy. And this, I think, in many ways, disengages our hearts from God's mission. The mission of James 1, 27. The mission of Matthew 28. Making disciples, teaching all people, all things, feeding the hungry, meeting the needs of orphans and widows. As long as we're comfortable, as long as we have all we need, we're okay, we'll just keep puddling, puddling along this path until we step over the threshold into eternity. But that's not doing what God's called us to do. Now, God does bless us with things in our lives that bring comfort and ease and praise him for that. But if those things disengage our hearts from the mission that God has called us to, then we're in trouble. And as we press forward together here as a church into what I believe is going to be an exciting and fruitful future of ministry for us all, one thing we all need is this. One thing we all need to understand is this, is that we need to see one another. We need to see this family. We need to see this community that we live in. We need to see the lost to see the rich, and we need to see the poor like Jesus. The scriptures turn all of the worldly, worldly preconceptions of people upside down. Turns them right upside down. So now we see men through the lens of the grace of God in Christ. And this is the key in terms of how we view and treat each other seeing everyone through the eyes of Jesus. We need to stand on the level playing field at the bottom of the cross. That level playing. No one is better than anybody else. And we need to live out varied and diverse relationships with each other to God's glory. And those varied and diverse relationships bring so much blessing. That is what the church should look like. My prayer is that in the Connie Baptist Church, the membership here is or will be a glimpse of the diversity we will see in heaven. And that we would enjoy and cherish that diversity together in the unity that we find in Christ. Do you want that? you want to experience that? Is that our desire here? That we would be an expression, a small, tiny expression of what heaven looks like here? That we would love to live out these varied and diverse relationships, that we would remove everything in our hearts that would seek to find favoritism, that actually these are my people and these people aren't, that I click with these lot but not with these lot, that I'm happy here where I'm at in my life because I'm comfy and I'm just gonna keep going rather than going out and reaching into the lives of people who literally are on our doorstep, whose lives are a mess. They need Christ and they're lost. They need our help and they need a hand. 
What are we going to do? Does this set a fire under us? Not so that we have some resentment against each other, but actually that actually sets a fire in us for the mission of God and that breaks down all the barriers that are within us so that actually we can, by God's grace, fulfill the mission he's called us to do. I pray it does. We cannot leave God's word without being unchanged. We cannot leave this morning without being changed or unchanged. So what are we going to do? My prayer is that that we would be a glimpse of the diversity we will see in heaven and that we would enjoy and cherish that diversity and the unity that we find together in Christ. May this be so for his glory, for his name, and for his renown. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, forgive us for the time where we have favored one over the other. Deep down in our hearts, we struggle with this sin. Lord, forgive us, we pray. May our hearts find this new trajectory. May barriers be broken. May favoritism be killed off. May impartiality be a reality in our life. May we follow Christ.